Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then verses 11 through 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we're going to take each word from this passage and do a Greek word study of it. No, we're not. Hey, um, next week I'm excited. Todd's going to be back and we're, we're going to be starting a new series uh, talking about following in the footsteps of Jesus. And it's going to take us right up to Easter. And I don't remember the exact title, but it's on the screen out there by the, uh, by the cafe. But check it out. And I'm excited about it. I think that's going to be very good for us. Um, hey, I want to I want to just bring up a few words that we hear talked about in the church and talked about in our culture, and I want to define them real quick. And I, of the three words, uh, I I just picked up almost the first definition I came across. Okay, so one of them is consumerism. Consumerism is a social and economic order that encourages the acquisitions. Or acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. And I added the parenthetical part there. At the least personal cost, right? More for less, right? So in fact, um, I don't know, I get a big thrill out of telling somebody how little I paid for as much as I got. You know what I'm saying? Like I got a dryer this last week for 50 bucks. I don't know how many people I bragged to already about it, right? So consumerism. Social and economic order that encourages the acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. Now, this next one uh, supposedly is very much a part of our culture. And that's unlimited, or yeah, unlimited options. We like unlimited options. In fact, I was going to take a picture of the tomato can portion of Fred Meyer's because I don't know how many different tomato varieties there's. Fire roasted and Italian and whole stewed and tidbits and I don't know how many there are, but I still have to try and find something to go complain about that they don't have. Hey, you don't have the Italian fire roasted 
stewed, whatever, I don't know. But anyway, you get my point. But unlimited options. But in a relativistic worldview, that means that uh, relativistic, there's no absolute standard, right? But in a relativistic worldview, all options are equally valid. You can't say one is better than another. And therefore, more options are desirable to reach greater levels of happiness. Right? Options are great. We love options. We have lots of options. A um, couple things about that, though. I actually heard on... Uh, I guess I'm going to leave my glasses on so I can see you. I heard on NPR a story one time that I thought was very fascinating. And uh, the guy was, it was just like a, he was sharing his experience. And he said he went shopping for jeans the first time in a long time. And he said the, the last time he could remember shopping for jeans, there was about two varieties. There were Levi's 501s and some like Wranglers or something like that. So he went shopping for jeans and he could not believe how many options there were. They're stonewashed. There's acid washed. There's uh, pre-shrunk. There's natural. There's flared bottoms. There's straight bottoms. There's boot bottoms. There's, uh, you know, on and on and on. And he made this interesting observation. He said, I left there with the best fitting pair of jeans I had ever had. And I was not happy. Yeah. He said... All those options left me with the feeling that there was something out there that was a little bit better. There's something out there that was a little bit better. Now, this is in a relativistic worldview, right? More options means that there's, we can make another choice that maybe will make us happier. But in reality, we live with a biblical worldview, which means that we're hemmed in by certain truths and moral virtues that takes certain options off the table. Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture. The Garden of Eden, right? You can eat from any tree in the garden you like, but not this one. This option is not an option for you, okay? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, think if I, you know, you remember the rich young ruler, if I just do the Ten Commandments, I'm right. The Ten Commandments are meant to be guardrails. They're just to keep us on the right playing field. They don't always tell us the right way to live or how to live the, you know, in the middle of that. But they're guardrails that keep us from going out. So when I get mad at my neighbor, I know that I can't, what, steal his stuff. I can't lie to him. I can't you know, try and seduce his wife. Or, I mean, just, those are way out of bounds. But it doesn't tell me, call me into love that God's asked me to do too. But the fact that it limits options, a biblical worldview limits options and it keeps certain options off the table because ultimately they're not good for me and not good for the way that God designed me. Make sense? All right. Last one. Did I skip ahead somehow? Huh, I have the same one. That's supposed to say, what's the word there? There it is, individualism. All right, individualism is a big one in our culture. The habit or principle of being independent and self-reliant. That's a big value in our culture, in American culture, right? But taken too far, it means I don't need you, and I don't care if you need me, right? 
Everybody should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We don't need anybody else. It's like it's lifted up as like the, the Marlboro man who's doing the cattle drive all by himself and killing himself with marbles, right? Or whatever. But uh, so all those things are, um, we could argue, but I think that these are influences in our culture. And beyond that, I think that they influence us. I think that they influence me. Because as cultural influence, we don't always consciously recognize that they're there. But they're there. They're impacting us. So, quick question is before we get into the passage. How might these things influence and impact our engagement, our participation with church? How might these things, how might these cultural influences, okay? Now, in the passage that we get going into, I want to talk about Ephesians for just a second. So, Ephesians is six chapters, okay? The first three chapters, Paul uh, does what he does very similar in his other letters. So, he's writing from prison, and in his letters, a lot of times he develops his theology, his Christology, how important it is for us to understand who Christ is and who we are in his presence, right? So he, he goes over their Christology and he goes over theology. And then in verses 4, or excuse me, chapters 4 through 6, he's going to deal with practical outworking of that. And so he makes the transition like this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, or some translations say, therefore, right? Clear transition now. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, I don't know how that word calling strikes you, but I'm thinking, okay, so he must be talking with pastors, missionaries, and real spiritual people, right? Right? Yeah, that's how we hear those kind of people. I accepted a call. I responded to the call of God, and that's, I'm, I feel called as a pastor, Right? But in reality, he's writing to all the Ephesians. So we could spend a whole message on the idea of calling, but I want to point out just a couple things that are important for us to realize in this passage, okay? Sometimes a calling is very specific, to a very specific role and a task, right? Like God called Nineveh, excuse me, Jonah, right, to go preach to Nineveh, right? Um, when, when Jesus calls Peter... Right? He says, I want you to come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So part of his call was both how he was going to live and the role that he was going to fulfill right from the get-go. Right from the get-go. And that's more of a journey. In fact, this verse, uh, the, the, a more literal translation talks about you know, walk in a manner worthy. Right? It's walking, and there's different... Different ways that Greek verb is expressed. One is walking like as in formation, in order. Hey, look, let's all get up. We're going to line up and we're going to keep practicing. Until we get to, it's that kind of an idea. Or there's the walk that's like the journey. It's, it's where we're moving. It's where we're going together. So in a sense, what he's saying, hey, um, as a prisoner for Lord, then I urge you to be journeying together. We're on this journey to live into this calling that we all have received. It's a, it's a general calling, right? 
And Paul kind of puts a little bit of a oomph in it because he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. Because Paul was called to be an apostle. But even his, he doesn't call himself a, a prisoner of Rome. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. Because he's so tuned in to his own calling. He said, look, look at the reality of how I'm living out my calling. Let me encourage you to journey on that with me. Okay? So two other things about calling. They're important for us. And one of them I've already kind of mentioned. But one of them, the very, this one's really critical. Calling is not invitation. In the sense that, hey, would you like to come to the party? Feel free. No. A call is God directing it. Jesus Christ is our head. He calls us, and it's not optional. There's not the, well, let me think about it, right? Well, I've got a better plan, right? Do you and I want to say that to the Lord? I don't want to. But a call is not optional. It's not an invitation. It's the loving guidance of Lord for our provision, for our protection, for our our good, for His purposes that fulfill His mission. Calling is not optional. And so he's writing to everyone, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And as he begins to now unpack the real practical application of his teaching, right? All right. Now then, we get into these verses. I want to read them out loud here. I'm starting in... Chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1 again. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what's interesting to me about that is in the practical, how he's going to ask us to practically apply what he's been teaching us about Christ. Do you know the first thing he calls us to do? Be the church. Be the church. So even in that, when he says, be humble, be gentle, make every effort to keep the peace, because there's one Father, there's one baptism, there's one Lord, there's one, right? And and Paul is appealing to these overarching themes about what reality is to elevate the importance of our story and to build a sense of unity that we have in that. You see, the first three chapters... As Paul is developing his theology, he's showing that there's this mystery of how God was going to deal with humanity, right? And for a while, um, God had a covenant relationship with Israel. But if you were an Israelite, if you were in Jerusalem, if you couldn't go to the temple, you were kind of out of luck. In fact, he says, this is in uh, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. It says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of their promise without hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's hard for us, I think in our day and age, to capture what a big deal it was for Jews and Gentiles, right, to come together as one church. And if, and, uh, if you read in Acts 15, this was, they really wrestled with this. Do we, and when, and when, when Peter, like in chapter 12 of Acts, if you look at that, he's like, wait a second, is, is God, in, is God including the Gentiles? I mean, he's just flabbergasted by this. That, that somehow God is able through Christ to reach out to everybody. This was a dawning thing even for the, for the disciples. And we see throughout history that God is in the business of bringing his kingdom to bear. And his people are the manifestation of his kingdom, his love, his goodness, and his way. And so what Paul is doing is saying, hey, yeah, Israel was here, but now God, through Christ, through what he's done, he's done away with the law, so now he can sweep everybody in. Everybody gets to be a part of this one people group, this one humanity. In fact, he uses these words a little bit farther down. He says, this is in uh, chapter 2, the middle of 15. It says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and to peace who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So our unity in Christ gives evidence to the masterful plan of what God is doing. To how God is redeeming humanity. That's why when Jesus was on earth, he says, By this, this is how people are going to know you're my followers. If you love one another. If you live in community. So, so what's, what's the point? We're called, it's not optional, we're called to unity. Our oneness expresses the reality of God's kingdom and redemptive work in the universe throughout history. There's one God. There's one baptism. There's one gospel that we all unite under. Right? One church. So he goes on from there. And so, okay, we're going to church now. And I'm going to jump down a few verses and uh, take a look at another. By the way, you'll notice that this kind of stands up against the idea of individuality. We're called to be together. I want to read a verse that's a little bit farther down. It says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, and evangelists, and the pastors and teachers to provide programs and services. I must have programs and services so the body of Christ may be built up. Oh, well, okay. Actually, I got a little question mark because that's not actually what it says. Okay, can I read what it actually says? So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. To equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
So you can see how that comes against consumerism. Um, that the, the verses we didn't read, Paul's making the point, look, Christ, by his own direction, has gifted every person. So we have unity in the church, but we don't have uniformity. And in fact, he's uniquely gifted each and every person who are his followers so that they have a part to play in building others up. Right? Call to serve others out of our uniqueness. Unity does not mean uniformity. Rather, we are all uniquely gifted by Christ and called to serve others so that we can all reach fullness in Christ. Did you catch those verses? It implies that if we aren't engaging in church together, if we're not fulfilling our unique role that God has given us, if we're not doing our part to build up the church to engage, that we're missing out. We're missing out. We're not... There's something that's in that, that together we experience Christ. Together as we serve together. There's, there's, a, there's a supernatural thing that happens. As we follow the call of God, God always empowers His call by His Spirit. And so as we engage in that together, somehow we're built up in Christ and we receive fullness. All right. This is the point in the service when I'm going to make us all feel really uncomfortable. Okay? I'm giving you permission. Not that I have to, because you will anyway. I'm giving you permission to feel uncomfortable. Okay? But what I want you to do is stand up where you are. Stand up. Now, as I give this instruction, I'm going to tell you to look at somebody in the eye. But if this is your first, second, or third time here, you can pretend like you're looking at somebody in the eye. Okay? But for those of you who've been coming to church for a while, you have to look at somebody in the eye. You're going to look across the sanctuary. You're going to find somebody. You're going to make eye contact. Like this. Oh, yeah. I see Kurt. Let me say, I need you, and you need me. Okay? One, two, three, go. All right. For how many people was that uncomfortable? How many people, yeah, oh, come on. How many people was that uncomfortable? It's okay. I know it's a little bit uncomfortable for me. The thing is, the more that we lean into this truth and believe it, the less uncomfortable it will feel. So if we were with your close-knit family or your close-knit group of friends, then suddenly it feels very natural, doesn't it? I need you and you need me. But see, we have to see the church through a new paradigm. God, God has brought us together He's knit us together so that we need each other as each one does its part. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We're called to unity. We're called to serve others out of our uniqueness. And finally, we're called to grow up together as the body of Christ. And so this imagery really comes out at the end. And I'm going to read the passage here in just a minute, but I want to point out a couple things about it before I do. But you see this imagery that all the parts fit together to make one whole. With Christ as the head, meaning He is the one that guides and directs. He's the one that defines who we are. In fact, He's the one who decides where each part fits in. Because he has the whole in mind and what he wants to do for his body, 
right? How he wants to direct them. As the body of Christ, we become his hands and feet in mission so that we can bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to the world, right? So let me read those verses again, and let's listen to them through that paradigm. It says, Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every kind of teaching and by every cunning and craftiness of the people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him... The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right, everybody stand one more time. I just love making you feel uncomfortable. I have to do it too, okay? I'm going to do it too. I'm going to do it while you do it. We're going to do the same thing instead of this time it's not I need you, you need me. But I belong to you, and you belong to me. Are you ready? We're going to pick somebody out here. I belong to you. You belong to me. Everybody do it. One, two, three, go. How many are for us? That's a little uncomfortable. Okay, that's okay. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. Can you see... How this teaching in this portion, as Paul is deeply concerned that the body would come together, they would see themselves as the body of Christ. They would come together, they would serve one another, that they would do mission together. He's very concerned that they have the wrong paradigm that they bring from their culture rather than their biblical worldview of what God is doing in the world. And they miss out on the blessing if they miss out on the call. You hear that? They miss out on the blessing if they miss out on the call. Okay? I want to read the very end, a couple of verses, the very end of chapter 2. Because, you know, when, the, when theologians talk about the church, they have all this fancy language to talk about, well, the church is all those who believe in Christ, there's the invisible church, and there's the visible church, and they're trying to distinguish how do we draw a line around who the church is. And a lot of times what it ends up talking about then is the church universal. From the time of Christ, from the day of Pentecost until now, that stretches across all denominations and all believers who call on the name of Christ and trust Him for their forgiveness, right? Well, how do you belong to a group like that? It's just by by just accepting Christ? But listen to what he says at the very end of of chapter 2. He says, in Him, he's talking about Christ as a... He's talking about the the whole body of Christ now as like a building with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, the one who holds it all together again. It says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. A temple is a place that God dwells. So he draws that big picture, right, for the Ephesians. But then listen to what he does. He goes, and in him you too... You Ephesian church, in him, you too, Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska. In him, you, right? In small church, in our local context. He says, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
See, that's the truth we want to live into. That's the call we want to respond to. As we come to the communion table, um, you know, it's easy for me to recognize. I thought about sharing some personal testimony about how I recognize my own life has got issues. I mean, you know, places I fall short. And I thought, you know, that's focusing on the individual. But as we come to the communion table today, the reality is we have a long way to go. And maybe for some of us, we're even deeply attuned to the brokenness of our own community. In other words, there's unconfessed sin. There's past wounds. There's communication issues. There's all that stuff. What do we do with that when God calls us into community? We come to the table. See? We come to the foot of the cross where we receive grace and mercy together. When Jesus broke bread, when Jesus takes the wine, he does it for his community of followers. So this is for you. My brokenness. My spilt blood. So we come to the table to receive grace as a community, and we lean into that truth just in the same way as an individual that I might have brokenness and woundedness in my heart and my life. I can't wait until something just magically happens. God invites me to bring my brokenness, bring my difficulty, and trust his grace in the process. We need to do that as a community. We need to come to the table as a community. So today we're doing communion a little bit different. You can see if you're a normal here, we, we, tip, we typically uh, set up tables around the room and people come as individuals. Today we come to the one table, the Lord's table we call it. And what I'm going to invite us to do when we take communion is come up the, the center aisles and return to your seat down the side aisles. But we'll take communion very uh, similar to what you normally do. So when you come to the table after I read some words and we pray, just come up and take the bread when you're and, and, and the juice. Eat the bread when you're ready, okay, or the cracker in this case. Take the juice with you back to your seat, and we're going to drink that together. I love that we do that about communion because that reminds us that we're doing this together. We come to the cross together. So today we're going to, it's going to take a little bit longer, and that's okay, but we're going to come up the aisles, take communion, and then head back. If you're not a regular attender here, maybe you're visiting from another church, we don't, this is the Lord's table. All we ask is that you come as an expression of faith. It could be your first time coming to the table. But you're saying is, I need the grace of Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to stand with these other people who believe that and need that as well. Okay, No shame in not coming. You do not have to come. Um, but that's how we're going to take communion today. I'm going to read the words out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. These are the words we always read every time we take communion. But I want to give you a little bit of context. I'm not going to read the context, but let me give you the context, the reason that Paul says this here. And that is because they're having problems caring for one another. As the body, they're not acting like one. They're acting selfishly. They're acting inconsiderately. And so in this passage, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, when he says, hey, everyone should examine themselves, the context is you need to make sure you're not 
offending your brother and sister in Christ. That's the context of this. As we read in 1 Corinthians, but I just want to read the words that Paul as he as he reads, uh, excuse me, as he repeats the words of Jesus Christ, okay? And after I do that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I'm going to pray. And then uh, we're going to have an open time of coming for communion. Remember, hold on to the juice cup and we'll take that together. But this is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. This is my body, which is for you. And he broke it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, Is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, help us to grasp more today of your incredible love and sacrifice that has given way to a new humanity, a new body, a transformed body. Lord, today we come and confess that often we don't follow your call. We select another option. So we need your forgiveness. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. And for each person here, Lord, I pray, pray that you would guide us and lead us in this journey, this journey into community and mission together, building one another up, Lord, serving your mission, being your hands and your feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready. The blood of the new covenant, the blood of our Lord Jesus, that in uh, you know in the later chapters of Ephesians, even when he's talking about husbands and wives and comparing marriage to Christ and his bride, it talks about Christ dying for her, singular, his, his bride, us. Not just individuals, but us together. He has us together in mind. So he shed his blood for us. So let's drink. Enjoy. Enjoy.